Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, I went to the ABC and auditioned. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I And I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> and as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages. Broadway is back. A swag of productions that were forced into an extended hiatus, upstaged by COVID, are back in theatres on the Great White Way. The return to the business of show coincides with the 74th Tony Awards ceremony. The event takes place on September 26th at the Winter Garden Theatre on Broadway. And to acknowledge this special event and hopefully the beginning of a return to live performance in Australia, I'm joined in this episode by two-time Tony winner, producer John Frost. Known affectionately as Frosty the Showman, impresario Frost has been at the pinnacle of musical theatre in Australia for several decades. The Gordon Frost organisation has contributed much of the commercial product that has filled theatres and grace stages around the country. His productions have garnered a swag of local awards as well as Tony Awards for productions of The King and I and Hairspray. Frosty reflects on his various attendances at the Tonys and the thrill of being acknowledged by the Broadway community. He also ponders our own help in awards, describes the recent transition of the Gordon Frost organisation to Crossroads Live and hints at what he could be presenting in 2022. Well, Broadway is back with theatres opening in recent weeks and and who better to acknowledge and celebrate that with me than two-time Tony winner, Mr John Frost. Welcome back, John. Uh, thanks, Peter. Thank you for asking me. Well, I, I, you know, especially with the, the, the Tony Awards happening, well, depending on when the listeners are, are listening to this, within about 24 hours or, or maybe it's, it's in the past. But I, I thought who better to give us some insight than uh, your good self, who's been to a number of Tony Awards and, of course, has, mm. has two of them uh, in, your, in, your, in your study. Where do you keep your Tony Awards? Uh, they, they sit near the front door in a, a big glass cabinet with my other awards. <laughs> so, so it's like an awards I've got, yeah. Have you got a pill room? Yes, that's yes. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, before we do uh, launch into discussing uh, Broadway, um, can I ask you about the recent, because you started GFO, the Gordon Frost Organisation, oh, it's about 40 years ago, I think now, founded that with, with Ashley Gordon. Yeah. But GFO yeah. is is no longer now. You've become Crossroads Live. Can you can you fill us in on that? Yeah, yeah. What happened was pre, pre, about a year before COVID hit. Um, I was asked by this company in America called Crossroads Live, would I be inter- interested in selling the Gordon Frost organization uh, because of its track record and and its uh, I don't say this braggingly, but, you know, we, we had a very successful, um, financially successful last 10, 12 years or so. Um, and at that stage, I'm, I wasn't, I was here or there about it and I didn't know and I didn't want to give up any of my um, sort of independence and that. But anyway, look, I said, let's go down the road and just see what happens. Um, so they did all the, we did all the negotiations and, they paid me what I wanted, and basically now the situation is is that we've phased out the name Gordon Frost uh, and adopted Crossroads Live Australia, which marries up to a company in England called Crossroads Live UK, which is run by a fellow that I've done a lot of shows with called David Ian. So we both sold our companies, and subsequently. Crossroads Live has bought interests in um, uh, companies in the Philippines, 
in Singapore. Uh, we've brought into uh, or own 50% of Kudos pantomimes, which is now Crossroad Lives pantomimes in, in the UK, which do 30 to 40 pantos a year. And so we're building the company globally. Uh, and it gives me more access now because of, uh, because of fi finances and certainly since COVID to go out and raise money for a musical is it's difficult. It's really difficult. So what Crossroads do supply is the funding for shows. Um, it gives me a leg up on if there is a show that's being developed in America that I have good feelings about or in London for that matter, or even in Australia, they will stump up the advance monies to get the show on and we'll have a major investment. And subsequently, what we've done is Crossroads Live worldwide have invested a lot on new things coming into New York, certainly a lot of things in the UK, and we'll try to do that with Australia too at the same time. So it gives me, it puts me in a strong position with my competition, I suppose, globally to get the Australian rights for things because I'm not running around now looking for and scraping money together. I just go, and if we all think it's a good idea, they write a check for me, and I pay that across to get the rights. Gee, that's a that's a huge reach. So, did you did you ever anticipate that you would have that reach when you started at the Footbridge Theatre? You always dream of those things, and but in those days, the, the the furthest thing from our mind was either either selling, and in those days, in the early '80s, mid '80s, no one ever wanted wanted to buy entertainment companies other than, you know, MGM or Paramount or whatever, certainly not live entertainment. Um, and then it all came together and, of course, COVID hit. And so it's, it couldn't have been better timing for me and I think for everybody at GFO or Crossroads Australia now. Um, so it, 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 it's good. It's a good position and they're great guys to work with. And to have somebody like David Ian on side, in the UK brings a lot of power um, to us here. So, you know, I think we're going to see over the next few years, certainly from my office, is maybe a lot more um, uh, newer shows and not necessarily, um, whilst we will continue to revive shows like Annie and Grease and Dirty Dancing, in Chicago. Um, we will see a lot more Chicago, of course, uh, <laughs> we'll see a lot more new, new musicals too from, from those countries and hopefully from Australia. Brilliant, brilliant. Now, uh, in my yeah. research for um, uh, other episodes I'm about to uh, record, I've been looking through a, a lot of old GFO programs. And in those early mm. programs, you were known as John E. Frost. What happened to the, the E? When did you drop that or decide to drop that? Uh, I think that I, I, I don't know. I think I was going through a stage where I thought I had to legitimize myself. And I thought E sounded good. And I think I went to a numerologist <laughs> who said you should use the E. And then I went through, after I'd spoken to the numerologist, I think I had a string of flops. And so I dumped the E and just left it with John Frost. That's how that, <laughs> that was many years ago when I was much, much younger and not as wise. As I am now. Um, as we've we've touched on briefly in that conversation, uh, COVID has really sort of given the industry a, a, a very tough time. It's a precarious uh, road to navigate. You've uh, have you been doing it because uh, you managed to get Pippin on, but I think nine to five was about to go onto the stage or into rehearsal when when uh, it was had to be shut down. Yeah, it, we, we, we were all contracted. Um, we'd signed the theatre agreement. We were a week away from commencing rehearsals with nine to five, and hence the dreaded, what was it, March fifteen or thirteen or something, um, happened, and we had to close. We had to close five shows. We had, we had that about to open. We had Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in just finishing its teching, tech rehearsals in Brisbane and sitting on millions of dollars in advance bookings. We had Book of Mormon in Auckland that, and on the Thursday night we opened it and on the Sunday night we closed it. <laughs> and again, millions of dollars in advance bookings and we had to hand that back. Uh, we had Shrek in Melbourne, um, which was halfway through a Melbourne season. We had, there was another one. There must have been another show on somewhere. 
what's that about magic mark magic mark oh of course magic mark was happening at the same time so you know it was just closing shows and putting a lot of people out of work um uh and in those you know in that period we all thought this is only going to be for three four months or whatever and we'll be fine well it's been a nightmare ever since for everybody um and it's the indecision, I think, that none of us, you know, we don't know what's around the corner. I'd like to think now that everybody's getting double vaxxed and, and it'll be, you know, life will come back into the industry come the end of this year. Well, the, uh, the industry in the States, the, the, the great Broadway, the great white way, they've been doing it hard for a long time, but are slowly creeping yeah. back. Springsteen has been performing since June. Uh, and then in, in recent weeks, a whole lot of shows have uh, returned to the stage. It's be interesting to see how that goes, won't it? Because they're so dependent on the tourist trade, whether that yeah. can continue, maintain a continuity. I think the problem is going to be over there is that um, I think the established hits that have been running for 10, 20 years are going to have a tougher time than the newer shows because, you know, you, you a lot of your listeners have been to New York and they've done the tourist thing and they go every 18 months or whenever, two years. But, you know, people are still going to see those shows that have been sitting there forever. And I think without that and the you, what they'll have to live on are the locals basically the locals and and uh, people within America and probably a few British tourists that are coming in now. Um, so I think, you know, the, the newer musicals will probably get a chance to get a leg up as such, where the older ones will have a, a much more difficult time in regaining the um, their momentum that they had. Um, not that I want to see any shows close, but um, it will be harder. And it was very refreshing to see the other night, you know, the, the reopening of Wicked, um, which I produced here in Australia, reopened back on Broadway. And again, in uh, the, the touring company reopened, I think, somewhere down in Texas um, to great acclaim and to um, uh, a lot of hysteria, which was great. So I think things like Wicked will be all right, but I don't know about the other ones. Streaming platforms. But time given, tell. That will indeed. Streaming platforms have given us an opportunity to to access live performance uh, with shows like Hamilton, um, Come From Away has just been released on one of the streaming services. Uh, Diana was filmed professionally. Do you think that's going to be the way of the future, that more and more uh, stage, musical stage plays will, will be filmed to, to be streamed to a worldwide audience? Because it's certainly been a great thing to, to have access to those Broadway productions. Well, it, it is a great thing for, for people like you and I, people yeah. in the business. But, but you know, because we think, oh, good, we'll have that, we'll keep that, we'll collect that. But really, I think the, the Mr and Mrs Average don't really care about it. And, they, they, look, for instance, you know, you look at Hamilton, that the, the one that Disney did. It was it was beautifully filmed and it was fantastic and it was great to have to keep that original cast to see them perform the show, but I think at at the end of the day, um, there's nothing like sitting in a theatre and experiencing it live. I, I don't think that will ever go, and I don't think any of these things that they they do show. I don't think it's going to damage the industry at all. I think if anything, it could you know could enhance. In the way you know you you will all watch Diana and we'll all sit there and go God next trip to New York I want to see that live you know we will do that I don't know if Mr and Mrs Punter would want to do would will, will be sitting down looking desperately for Diana to appear let alone come from away or anything else and it's it's never the same anyway you know yeah. it's it's a they're high class archivals really that's all i think they are i i can never sit through them i can't watch them really i watched a bit of hamilton i got bored um with them um because i i'd rather sit and see it live in the moment 
in the moment, yeah. Well, with the return to Broadway, we're also seeing the return of the, the Tony Awards after a 12-month hiatus, 79th annual Tony Awards. Uh, we didn't see them last year because of uh, COVID's interruption. Uh, this year, it's taken place at the, the Winter Garden Theatre, which, of course, was the home for Funny Girl for many years and Cats, and I think most recently, Mamma Mia. And Maine, with of Angela course, Lansbury. Yeah. Opened there. I think, did West Side Story open there? I don't know. Can't remember. Maybe not. Um, no, it didn't. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think it's great that the, the Tonys are going to be back in a, a, a theatre and out of Radio City Musical. Um, you know, I was lucky enough when I won my first Tony, um, we, it was done on the set of Phantom of the Opera, the, Maj the Majestic, and I think that was either the last year or second to last year it played uh, in a, a, a legit house and then it went to Radio City. Um, so it'll be interesting to see as we move on over the years if it will go back to Radio City or stay where it is. It's only the second time that uh, the awards have been held at uh, the Winter Garden. The first time was in 1975 for the 29th Tony Awards. Uh, our hosts this year... Uh, Audra McDonald and uh, Leslie Odom Jr. Um, Audra's won five Tony Awards and, and she's nominated again this year. Uh, she could be a six-time winner. What, are, what, are, what What is she nominated for this year? I can't, because I missed, because uh, of COVID, you know, we sort of bit threw us out of whack. Um, uh, she's nominated for Best Performance by an Actress in a Leading Role in a Play for uh, Frankie and Johnny and the Claire Balloon. Uh, Oh, yeah, Tom Curtahay. Yeah, he produced that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I hope they win that. That's good. He's a friend of mine. Good, good to know, Tony winners. And at the end of the uh, end of the Tony Awards, they're going to have a big concert uh, back to Broadway, which will, uh, will be a lot of fun. Unfortunately, in Australia, I think the only way we can uh, catch it is through Paramount Plus, the new streaming service this year. Yeah, so we all got to pay money to watch. That's a bore. How do you normally watch it? Mind you, through Fox. But so I pay money too, don't I? But I used to love that thing, you know, on a on a Monday morning, that public holiday Monday in June. Um, we'd all sit and watch it, you know, and it was terrific. Come through in the morning, and then they'd re they'd cut it and edit and put it out at night. But for some reason, they're not doing it this year. So I don't know if Foxtel have lost the contract or. They don't want to do it anymore or whatever. It'll be a shame. But um, I suppose we'll all have to subscribe to Paramount. Yeah, or catch it on YouTube that night. Or catch it like we all do. <laughs> yeah. So the Tony started in 1947 uh, and the, the uh, yeah. American Theatre Wing established it. Do you know uh, how they got their name? Yeah, from uh, Antoinette. Um, Perry. Perry, indeed, who was an actress, director, producer. She, yeah, yeah, she was an actor, actress, director, and she they named it after her. Um, and and um, from then, then it used to be just a medal. They'd give you a medal uh, in a in a, a nice little box. So it was never the the award that that it is now. And it used to be done as a dinner, I think. Some of the big winners that night were uh, Jose Ferrer, Arthur Miller, Helen Hayes, Ingrid Bergman, Patricia Neal, and Agnes DeMille. N great names of the past. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was quite iconic uh, watching every um, award ceremony and uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the token appearance by Isabel Stevenson. Did you ever meet her? No, I never met her, but Ted Chapin, who is a friend of mine who, who, uh, was the head of Rogers and Hammerstein. He he sat on that committee for a few years, and he got to know her quite well. He said she was a she was a tough, but she was tough. You know what I mean? But she had uh, you know got it to where it was, and all of that. And um, she was swell. You know, she was she was great. She was a great um, mover and shaker, as such. Yeah, she looked 110 when I first watched, started watching the Tonys in the 80s and that, and she still looked at 20 years later. So, 
and she used to keep talking, if I remember rightly, and all that. You you, could, you had to get a hook to get her off stage. And no one, everybody seemed to be quite bored. The yeah. orchestra would swell in and it would be time for her to go. That's right. <laughs> get rid of her. So The King and I, uh, you actually uh, won Best Revival of a Musical and Roger Kirk won Best Costume Design, yeah. Brian Thompson Best Set Design uh, and, and yourself, a production that originated in Australia. Tell me about that, that evening in the lead up to the Tony Awards. What were you doing? What did you wear? Who did you well, take? Let, let me tell you, it started, The King and I was a, a passion of mine. I always wanted to do it. And I remember having... Chris Renshaw, the director. I couldn't get a director to direct it. I offered it to Richard Werrett. I offered it to Gail Edwards. I offered it to another Australian to direct it. Um, and they all turned it down. So Chris Renshaw was sort of the last on my list. And he was in town directing Mercado for Opera Australia, or the Australian Opera in those days. And um, I met him at a dinner party with the wonderful Diana Bliss, um, the late Diana Bliss, and she introduced me to him. And Brian Thompson and myself and Roger Kirk, I remember sitting around uh, a barbecue table. I was living in Glebe in a terrace house at the time, and I had an outdoor area, and we sat there with a lot of wine and a barbecue going, and... Brian came up with the wonderful idea of using all the elephants and the red and all of that. And um, my passion was I didn't want to see a ship on stage because the curtain goes up and they're on the bow of a ship and I didn't want to see that. And I, it was my idea to bring the, that scene onto the, um, the shore of Siam or Bangkok. Um, and it, it grew from that. And then Brian, of course, you know, we flew Brian to um, Thailand with Chris Renshaw and they walked right through the Royal Palace and, or what they were allowed to do and got a lot of ideas from that. And hence, you know, the design was, and it still is, is magnificent. And um, it, <coughs> we got Adelaide, the Adelaide Festival Centre to co-produce it with us. And myself and Tim McFarlane, who was running Adelaide at the time, raised the money for the show. And a lot of the money came through um, uh, the Queensland Performing Arts Centre, the Perth Theatre Trust, the Adelaide Festival Centre, the Victorian State Opera, which was Ken McKenzie Forbes at the time, and the Victorian Arts Centre, and, and independent money at the time. And that's another... I'm, did I ever tell you that when I went over... Oh, it's a great story where I had to go and I had to raise about a half a million dollars for it. And I had this one investor, somebody said, oh, you should go to this guy and meet him in King's Cross. He's got a lot of money. So I went and met with him and uh, he was a detective or a private, he was a private detective. I won't mention any names, but he leant over and he had this gun in his pocket. <laughs> and he said, you've got to guarantee I'm going to get this half a million dollars back. And I said, well, this is show business. Yeah. And um, you can't guarantee it. The show might be a flop. He said, I don't think so. It won't be a flop and sort of flashed the, the revolver at me. So I left it at that. I never took his money, thank God, because I might have been at the bottom of the harbour by now. But that was just <laughs> one of the wonderful stories that will go in a book one day. But anyway, I'm diverting from it. So we put the King and I went on in six months. We got it up in six months. It was designed. It was cast. And, of course, Hayley Mills came out to do it. And it was like a royal visit. When we opened in Adelaide, she was mobbed, absolutely mobbed. And we toured around Australia with it. And we went to Perth, and Hayley couldn't do Perth. So an actress called Nari Dawn Porter, who was a New Zealand actress who lived in London, and she was in the original television series, The Forsyth Saga, who Noel Coward said she was, what say, something like, who are the worst three actor, actresses in the world? And the answer was Nari Dawn Porter. Anyway, um, <laughs> Nari, he wasn't a terrible actor. He was quite good, actually. But someone, I was talking to an agent before she came out to Australia to do Perth, and this agent said to me, they said, oh, by the way, 
Nari never goes to an opening night. And I said, oh, the party. And he said, no, the show. I said, what do you mean? He said, she hasn't opened a show in the last 10, 15 years. I said, really? I said, oh, God, okay. So anyway, Nari Dawn Porter comes out and she has costume fittings and we rehearse her in, in Adelaide or wherever we were, in Sydney, I think. And we go to Perth. Tech week happens in Perth. She gets cold and she comes back and then come opening night, I get a phone call saying, hello, darling, I can't go on. <sighs> so I went and visited her and in bed with the flu or a voice problem and she never opened Perth. And an actress, Australian actress called Christine Marnie um, was her understudy and Christine went on for the opening or, or for the first four performances. So it was true. She never opened a show. So wow. certain didn't open my show. Um, <laughs> and sadly, she's, um, she's passed away now, but um, she was a real character. So what was the original question we were talking about? <laughs> you know, that night going to the Tony I, Awards. How did you oh, spend it? Oh, the Tony Awards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it, so did you walk the red carpet? And... Yeah, yeah, did all that. So anyway, Rogers and Ted, Ted Chapin comes to Australia. No, a man called Tom Briggs, who worked for Rogers and Hammerstein, I've got to do all this, who licensed me the show, comes to Australia because part of the deal was three or four first-class tickets to Australia, hotels, you know, the whole kit and caboodle for the Rogers and Hammerstein people. So they send over this man called Tom Briggs. Tom comes over, falls in love with the place, um, falls in love with Hayley, thinks the production's wonderful, phones Ted Chapin and says, Ted, you've got to come and see this. It's great. So Ted comes over. He loves it. Then he, brings, then he brings Mary Rogers. Mary comes over and says, this is the best production of The King and I I've ever seen. It. And I, I, I should know because I saw the original with Gertrude Lawrence and Yul Brynner. So Mary goes back and Ted go back to America and they tell everybody there's this extraordinary production of The King and I in Australia. It should come to Broadway. So I get a portfolio of photographs and all of this and information on the show in a, to take to New York. So I go to New York and I meet with Ted and Ted takes me around to different theatre producers around town. And we meet several producers. One producer says to me, hey, you know, we, we only had the King and I here with Yule about 10 years ago, you know, and, you know, Yule was loved here for this. And he said, look, we, we could do it. I've got the set. You know, I've got Yule's old set that from the original 1952 production. We could get out, throw a coat of paint on it, and away we go. And I said, oh, no, it's not quite like that. This is on a grand operatic scale. Oh, it won't fit our theatres here on Broadway, you know, because it's quite small, not like yours over there in ours. So we move on. He So we're not going to go with that guy because he wants to bring out the old Yule Brunner set. So eventually... We, we come across um, a group of guys called the Dodgers who I had worked with many years ago in a show called Big River that I produced and they produced Big River originally. And so we all meet at Sardi's of all places. They sit down, they look at the photographs, they look at me, they say, let's do it. So the Dodgers uh, co-produced it on Broadway with the Kennedy Centre and us and the Adelaide Festival Centre. And so it's all, it's happening. Um, we, they were concerned that Haley wasn't a big enough name for Broadway, so they didn't want to take Haley. And then Donna Murphy's name came up, who was sort of a hot potato at the time. And so they wanted to go with her. I didn't really know her work at the time. Uh, and they had Lou Diamond Phillips, who I got really excited about because of his movie career and that. So it all sounded really good. So we get to New York. We take the Australian set over. And of course, you know, a lot of the Australian set doesn't fit into the Neil Simon Theatre. So it had to be rejigged and some pieces rebuilt or, or cut and all of that. So it opens at the um, Neil Simon Theatre in whatever year it was, 94, 95 or something. And we get, I think we got good reviews. We might have, oh, the New York Times, which was 
was it Frank Rich or one of those other guys, was so, so about it. But the rest of the reviews were fantastic. Um, and so, of course, the Tony nominations come out and it's nominated for Best Revival of a Musical, which is, you know, the producer, which is us. Um, uh, Brian Thompson, Best Set Design. Roger Kirk, Best Costume Design. And Donna Murphy um, wins it for... Um, Best Actress. So I think it, ran, it won, what, four, four or five Tonys? Um, and we had a two-year run there. But leading up to it, it was very, very exciting um, because I went, I went and spent about three months there before the show opened um, and got to live in New York and that. And I had this fabulous apartment in on Madison Avenue and it was Ted Chapin's father's apartment and he had moved out because he would remarried or something. So... This was like four bedrooms and it had a servant's quarters for the, the maid and all of that. I didn't have a maid, um, but it was fantastic. I loved it. So we got the show on. The show opened, as I said. Um, but le leading up to the Tonys, um, they turned around and through Rogers and Hammerstein threw a big cocktail party in their offices. And Dame Joan Sutherland was there. Um, I think Barbara Cook came. A lot of people that were involved with Australia came um, and um, and a lot of people flew over from Australia for the opening of that. And leading up to the, the, the Tonys was really interesting because the, the it's a bit like Melbourne when Melbourne leads up to the grand final of the football. Like the city goes into this sort of, whole madness thing you know the papers and it's front page of the papers the television networks pick up all the footage and all of this and this is just leading up to it from the nominations through um which is about a two and a half month three month thing and it just builds up into this frenzy and it i've never experienced anything like it certainly in show business and leading up to it you know you the we had ours at the majestic theater and um I remember um, being there and sitting in the seats we were allocated and I was sort of towards the back and I thought, oh, well, that was certainly, we're not going to get the gong if I'm sitting at the, well, I wasn't sitting at the back, but I was about halfway back, I suppose. Anyway, so the fella gets up on stage before the awards and he says, now, look, if you, if you get up, if you win, Make sure you don't fall others up the stairs. There's four steps, and no, no different to going to see a taping of a television show, and that's really what it is. It's a big grand television show. But what was so wonderful about that year? It was the 50th anniversary of the Tonys, and all the Tonys were sort of gold that year. The rest of them have been silver. So I got I got a gold Tony, which is nice. But that year they brought everybody back that had that was still alive from the Tonys um, that were around. So, you know, there was Patricia Neal, there was uh, Liza Minnelli, there was, uh, you name it, they were there. And there is a photograph, uh, which I'll send you. I'm going yeah. to share I'm going to share it on uh, Stage's socials, Instagram and Facebook, so people, listeners can have a look at that and check it out. It's a wonderful photograph right. with you in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, get right. So I got right in the middle and it was for a curtain call. So it was sort of celebrating 50 years of the Tonys. So I was there, Brian Thompson's there, Roger Kirk's there. Um, and it, it was with everybody or anybody that was a star in the theatre and, and on television and on film to a degree were there. It was unbelievable. And, you know, once you got the award, you were whizzed off to Sardis across the road where... The, people that know Sardis, that, that whole room was basically all the tables and chairs were taken out. And it was like a giant cocktail party for all the, all the winners. Or it was like a big green room as such. And you were, you know, given whatever you wanted, you know, a martini or champagne or whatever. Um, but it was, it was sort of like pinch time. I remember standing there pinching myself thinking, is this real? Is this really happening to me? And... <laughs> And uh, it, it was like wherever you looked, there was a there was a megastar, you know. And it was like, oh, this uh, this is weird. Just 
didn't seem right, but it was right and it was true. So that that will certainly was an un unforgettable moment for me personally, and certainly for my career in my career. And that it was extraordinary. But what I loved more was the celebration of it. And and you know you would walk down the street a day later, and um, you would somebody would just come up to you and say, "Oh, congratulations." Now I was one of you know six or seven producers. Um, how they knew. You know, they must have watched it on television. But, you know, I, I didn't make a speech. One of, one of the Dodgers did. Um, it's probably, you were wearing around your neck, weren't you, on a chain? That's how they knew. Yeah. <laughs> That's how they knew. That's right. A bit like the Olympics, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it was just bizarre. It was a bizarre time. And subsequently over the years, you know, I took Jill Perryman to the Tony Awards, a Tony Awards, and introduced her to Carol Channing because Jill was about to play Dolly Levi and, Dolly Levi and Hello Dolly for me. And um, so, you know, over the years, it's sort of been a fun thing to do. But it was much more fun when it was in a legit house and not at Radio City. But Radio City is good fun too. It's a beautiful space and it's great. Well, the King and I certainly yeah, gave so you a, a, an entrance card to, to New York because you also won another oh. Tony Award for Hairspray. Yeah, for Hairspray. And Hairspray was interesting because... I sat through a, uh, a workshop uh, of Hairspray and basically all it was was really a reading. It was, I remember it was about 18 stools and lecterns and a two or three piece band and they read the script and sang the songs and played a bit of the music. Um, you know, they'd had the show wasn't blocked or anything, but they were doing a, an investor's um, raising money for it and we put in a million dollars and I just knew there and then I thought this has got hit written all over it it just ticks every box commercially um and um entertainment wise and um you know it was fantastic and then I went to Seattle for the tryouts and then of course the opening on Broadway which was great it was a great night. It was a great night and a great group of people. Your turn, Peter. <laughs> this is great. Very, very good. So as a, uh, a producer of Hairspray uh, on Broadway, you didn't want to produce it in Australia? Because you, you didn't present it. No, um, that's not Paul Dainty presented it. Yeah, well, um, let me, we, we had, we, we invested in, to, no, we didn't. We, we had the Australian rights to the producers, and we had the an option on the rights to Hairspray as a original producer for Australia. And at the time, I was working with a, a set of other uh, SEL Sports and Entertainment Limited, another group of producers, and um, we decided to do the producers first. Uh, which we produced with Reg Livermore and Tom Berlinson and Bert Newton and goodness knows who. And, and at the end of that, um, we, Hairspray just kept on being pushed back further. And I think my co-producers in Australia didn't lose, I think they, they got a little nervous because I think we'd had a couple of flops. We'd had Footloose and we had Man of La Mancha, which was, they were difficult. They, they weren't successful. So they worried about Hairspray being too Americana, I think. So uh, we got a letter. I remember getting an email um, saying that, you know, we had a month to renew our rights uh, or they were going to go back to the, uh, the author's ownership. And for whatever reason, stupidly, um, the email was never answered um, by my co-producers and we never took the option. And then all of a sudden we hear Paul Dainty was going to produce it as an arena show. And, you know, I knew there and then that, the, you know, I'd, I'd, Hairspray, the Broadway version of Hairspray is not an arena show, it's a... A musical in a 
1,500, 2,000 seat theatre. That's how it should be presented. So anyway, they Paul Dandy decided to do it in a um, a theatre at the Princess, but he wanted to do his own version, and he got David Atkins and David got a creative team together, and they produced Hairspray, um, a new version of it. Why they never did the Broadway production, I have no idea. I have no idea. But anyway, um, Hairspray had a sold a lot of tickets, but I don't know. Probably made money. I don't know. I can't comment on that because I don't know. But um, yeah, so it was a missed opportunity. So do you think you'll ever do Hairspray? Um, uh, let's say watch this space. You like, you like teasing, don't you? What do you mean by that? Well, you know, it's... Yeah, I'd love to do it. It's one of my favourite shows and I won a Tony Award for it and I'd love Australia to see the production the way it was meant, not with a whole lot of projections. You're not going to call me and say, can you cut that out? No, no. I thought you were going to say you're going to call me and offer me the role. <laughs> we'll talk about that offline. Of <laughs> <laughs> of course, a, a whole lot of Australians have won Tony Awards now. I, I'm going to throw a few names at you. So let's see if you can identify what they won for. Tim Chappell and Lizzie Gardner. Oh, well, that's easy. That was Priscilla. It, for, for what? What was the award, though? Oh, what was it? Would I think? Didn't they? They got it for Priscilla, though, didn't they? Yeah, but what did the that? Yeah, yeah, very good. Hugh hey. Jackman. Hugh Jackman. Boy from Oz. Here we go. This will trick Cyril Richard. He would might have got. Did he get it for that? Oh no, that was a television version. Peter Pan. Um... No, well, he did get it for Peter Pan. Oh, there you go, hmm. Marty. Uh, and. Um... All right, he, he's, uh, he, she's won four times, Zoe Caldwell, the great Zoe Caldwell. Oh, yeah. She probably got it for Medea. She did. And she got it for, certainly got it for Masterclass because I saw yep. her do it. And oh, I, couldn't, I can't remember what the other two would be for. Uh, a film with Maggie Smith. Medea. Oh, Jean Brodie. Yeah, yep. Prime Jean Miss Brodie. And, and the, the fourth one I'd never heard of, Best Featured Actress in 1966 for a play called Slapstick. Tragedy. No, I don't know that one. Yeah, yeah. So you met her, did you say? Um, but I'm. She was at the opening night of the King and I, and um, she was at the party. And I, I've always wanted to meet her. I've always been a great fan. I've seen her do a few things. So I went up to her and introduced myself. And she was sitting at the table, and because uh, they were all dinner tables, and I remember going down on my knees saying introducing myself and that and I said I wish you'd come back to Australia and do something and she said because she she when she had come back she'd come back for the Melbourne Theatre Company that's the only thing um and she said oh no one would remember me no one would know who I am over there I said oh I think you'd be surprised because she was a great great actress and um um you know she she came out I saw her do Medea with the Melbourne Theatre Company with Patricia Kennedy and I saw her do The Visit which she did she opened the John Sumner Playhouse at the Art Centre in Melbourne that was the last time she was out here um, but sadly she's passed away now She was married to a producer too Robert Whitehead wasn't she? Robert Whitehead yeah who was a great great uh, Broadway producer um, who produced internationally. Um, I think she's got two sons, two kids, or well, they're all grown up now. Australia is represented this year um, with the Global Creatures production of Moulin Rouge, um, and they've got an extraordinary yeah. number of, uh, of nominations. Um, so we wish them all the best. I mean, it's their fourth, fourth musical after King Kong, Strictly Ballroom and Muriel's Wedding. So... Um, Let's hope they can uh, score a bag full of awards uh, for Moulin Rouge, which is in waiting in Melbourne, isn't it, to go on? Well, it's all ready to go. You know, I believe they, they tech rehearsed it, they dress rehearsed it, and now it's all just sitting there. While every, 
all those poor actors and crew people are counting how many toes they've got. So, um, yeah, they're just waiting. And so who knows? But um, we'll certainly see it. it I, look, I, I went to see it my last Broadway trip. I didn't know what to expect. I was expecting I'd hate it because I, I didn't care for the film at all. The film was a spaghetti bolognese of nothing. And um, so I thought, here we go. So I went along and I was just bowled over. I just adored it. I thought it was so good, so beautifully cast, scenically just magnificent um, and just Carmen, the producer, has just ticked every box. She's done everything right on that show. Um, and, of course, you know, the, the creative team, are all, they're all Ameri they're American and English. They're not, there's no Australians there. Um, but that's okay. Um, it, she's got the right people together for it. Um, and I think opening it in New York was a really smart thing to do. Um, and I wish her all the best for it and, and everybody involved with it. You know, Alex Timbers is a great director and John Logan, the book writer, pulled it together um, as a book writer, um, is doing a great job on it. So, you know, I hope it wins. It deserves to. It's spectacular. But, you know, they're very odd over there, the way they vote, because, you know, the last three or four years or three years, they've really picked off-the-wall shows to, to, to tick, uh, tick the boxes for. You know, they're not necessarily big blockbuster musicals. They're sort of left of centre, which is fine. Well, the nominations for, for Best Musical this year, uh, first time making history, all the nominations are jukebox musicals. Jagged Little Pill, which, again, was a, a, um, a casualty of COVID in Australia that was about to open at Theatre Royal or about to, to go into rehearsal. Milan Rouge and Tina, yeah. the Tina Turner musical. Yeah, I know. Yeah, so they're all coming back. I think Jagged Little Pill is about to open back in New York or it's open. No, it's about to open. And Tina will reopen. Um, yeah, so it's going to be, I think Moulin Rouge will take it. I think it'll it'll get it. And if it doesn't, well, it's, it's unfortunate because it deserves it. But, you know, they see these shows and they go, oh, that show's making millions of dollars a week and making everybody rich. That's going to be okay. Let's vote for the, the underdog, you know. So, But, you know, Tina's a, a great show and, and um, will do well. Jagged Pill... I think it'll be between Jagged Pill and, and that one. So, you know, it's it's all up for grabs, I suppose, with those two. Of course, in Australia, our, our own awards for, for theatre creative and performance excellence are the Helpman Awards. Now, um, yep. they began, they were launched in about 2001, I think. Yeah. You, were, you, were you behind that in the the birth of the oh, No, we were, we were, yeah, we... We, um, when I was with working with Sports and Entertainment Limited, I'll give James Erskine the credit, but James suggested the the design and the sculptor to design that award with the LPA. Um, I don't think it's a very attractive award, actually. But anyway, um, it, uh, he 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 designed that, and then, then I think we were involved with. A couple of early award shows, um, one that we did in the, in the old showroom at, at Star City, or that was for the J.C. Williamson Award, I think, um, whatever. But earlier on, we worked a little bit, and then it was all, then the LPA got heavily involved with it, which was great, which was what it needed to be. But I'd like to see it out of the theatres. I, I don't... Uh, I think, I think no one ever buys a ticket. You can't, I bet no one in, in the industry would go out and spend $100 and buy a ticket. They all try and con a ticket for free and they get a free ticket. So they're not supporting the industry in any way. So I'd rather see it be a dinner, a bit like the Logies, where it is much more, it's simplified. And you're not giving it, 
you know, to the best bowling alley in Rooty Hill. You know what that's I'm saying? Of, that, but there's too many. Yeah, I was going to say that's a lot of prawn cocktails at that dinner because <laughs> a lot of people go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 I don't think you no. But they won't go because most of them are all the tickets are given away. What I'm saying is you only invite the nominees. Right. So it's a selected invited audience, yeah. and you've got to pay. Yeah. Don Frost is nominated. I pay. I pay. Well, usually if you're nominated, I think you get two two free tickets or something. I don't know what you get. I, I just they shove it in my hand. I go, no, I'm not going. Uh, I won't go to the Helpmans anymore anyway because it's just too too boring. So I I um I think it should be a closed shop dinner that. The nominee, the nominee, nominee should should be invited, and they should be allowed to take two guests or something like that. That should be on. You should buy a table at ten, a bit like, and and keep it at maybe five hundred people or four hundred people, and you do it in a hotel or a convention center of some sort. That's what I think because I think doing it in the in the theaters is too expensive. It's just well, I know it's far too expensive, and. I don't think, and then you can watch it on television if you want to. Watch it on the ABC. Is the adjudication anyway, problematic? The are, I, no, no, not really. I think it, it's you know we all get a vote to what who to vote for. You know we all sit on separate committees. But I'm just meaning yeah. that you know with the, with the Tony Awards, it's it's one theatre district. You know, just just in New York, the the Green Room Awards in Melbourne are just for what goes on on the Melbourne stage. So, yeah, is it yeah. difficult to adjudicate an entire country? Yeah, I think it is, and and if it's a national award show, it's got to be the whole country. You know, um, and look, I think they've nailed it how to do it. And they do it quite successfully, I think. Um, but again, if you were in per living in Perth and Brisbane, do you hold your breath for the Helpman Awards each year? Probably not, because it's controlled out of Sydney and Melbourne. It's Sydney Melbourne centric. But the voting system, I think, I think it all needs to be simplified. Probably the whole thing. Um, so you know, they're not going to do it next year. I reckon it's two or three years away, if it even, even if it comes back again, for that matter. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. But, you know, I know they haven't got a lot of money anymore because of COVID. So unless government are going to hand over a lot of money to support an award show, I'd certainly think that the money can be spent a lot smarter than handing out a few gongs to people don't you think yes absolutely 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 yeah especially as you as you say you know it's going to be a, a very tough time uh crawling back to live performance and, and yeah. making it all return to what it once was and um all of those uh monetary considerations need to uh, be given that uh, considered thought yeah that, that's right and i think that that that, that it's interesting. Will we get back to what it was like? I'd like to think we will, but you know, the government's hardly been handing out buckets of money, you know, really for an industry that is sells more tickets than the sports industry. Um, but you know, I can't complain. I've you know, I've received money from them, so you know, to get um, nine to five back on. Um, so, but then, you know, you look at New, America, New York, where, you know, I know people there, producers there that have, you know, received checks for up to $30, $40 million for their shows from the government. But we're not America. We don't have 250, 300 million people. And we're not as wealthy as, a, as that country. So, and we don't, you don't come to Australia to see a Broadway show, do you? <laughs> you come and see a kangaroo and the beaches or whatever you know so it's all different so nine to five uh, you've hinted at what what's next for crossroads live yeah. in 2022 uh right well that you can talk about um 
yeah, I can, I, I'll just, well, I'm the boss, so I can tell you whatever I like. And then they'll just <laughs> tell me to shut up and I'll read you and say, can you cut that from the thing? And you'll say, too late. Um, no, no, no. Well, no, nine to five uh, going back. We, we, we're opening that in, um, when are we opening that? February at the, at the uh, Lyric, I think. No, we're not at the Lyric. Are we at the Lyric or the Capital, one of them, in Sydney? And then the plan is to put, um, is to reopen, uh, well, we haven't closed it yet, but um, we haven't opened it. Uh, Cinderella will go out again. We'll try and go out uh, about mid-year for a national tour. So Cinderella uh, is another um, addition to your Rodgers and Hammerstein canon. You've done South Pacific and Sound of Music and yeah. The King and I. You obviously love r &H. I love them because I, I think they they know they know how to write a tune, as our American friends talk about. I'm a traditionalist, and look, you know, I'd rather sit through Rodgers and Hammerstein and Lunar and Low than lots of other things. Um, and I love the sweeping stories. They were they were masterpieces of their time and still are, I think. And you know, there's been a lot of criticism about oh. You can't produce a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical anymore because it upsets too many people or, you know, it offends this and it offends that and whatever. Well, if we all thought that way, you know, we'd be producing nothing. And um, I will continue to produce these pieces um, because they certainly don't offend me and seeing I'm paying the money to get them on, they'll be happening. So... And they shouldn't be lost. You don't say that about Shakespeare or, or any other playwrights. So um, why would you do it about Rodgers and Hammerstein? Or, you know, My Fair Lady, for that matter. It's another one I want to revive eventually. Um, so we, 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 we can't lose our history too much. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. Uh, Fro Frosty, thank you for coming back uh, and doing another episode of, of Stages. Our our pilot episode was such a success <laughs> that we, we were given yeah. the go ahead for this 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 series. I've had lots of terrific feedback on your uh, your episodes. Oh, good, that's good. No, I, I played them back and listened to them. And I thought they were quite good too. I thought, oh, you're quite interesting actually. And somebody said to me, you know, you should write a book in that. And I just thought, oh. I think we need to wait for a few people to die and then I can really be honest, you know? So. Well, you haven't disappointed today. <laughs> you haven't no. disappoint disappointed today. You've thrown a few hand grenades. I'm just waiting for them to go off. Yeah, well, that's always the fun bit. Let's, let's do that. The fun bit is waiting for them to go off and then because I, I you know, I'm not a party to Facebook and all that other stuff. I don't, I'm not a part, I just don't play that game. So I don't know what they write. So it's good. So I can say whatever I like to say and I don't answer back because I don't know what they're saying. But then on the other hand, they may not be saying anything. And so that would be even more upsetting to me. So as long as they're talking about you, you're okay. <laughs> there is certainly no one like Frosty. He's the ideal guest equipped with tremendous passion and knowledge of the business, a vast supply of anecdote and a candid confidence to call it as he sees it. I direct you to the two-part conversation at stages recorded with John in series two. It's an engaging tale of the 15-year-old Adelaide boy who ran away to join the circus and wound up as ringmaster, the consummate showman, John Frost. As stated in the conversation, I will share on Stages Socials the 50th Anniversary Tony Awards photograph where hopefully you can spot John, Roger Kirk and Brian Thompson. Check out the Stages Facebook page and Stages Podcast on Instagram. I must point out uh, also and clarify that early in the episode I referred to this year's Tonys being the 79th. It's actually the 74th. Sorry about that slip. Thought it best to rectify, clarify, clear that up, as I'm sure there is a fellow show queen out there screaming 74, 74 at their listening device. Also, good news, if you're wanting to catch the 74th Tony Awards, they will be screened live by 10 Peach on Monday morning. Thank you, Channel 10, 
for bringing the theatre grand final to all of us musical theatre fans. Well, theatre fans, because of course the awards encompass plays as well and all the creative arts. Following the broadcast, you can then catch up through the streaming service Paramount+. Plus. Thanks for joining us in this episode and thanks to my guest today, Frosty the Showman, John Frost. I'm Peter Eyes. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe and I'll catch you next time.